What happens when the judge gets it wrong? When parties invest a lot in trying their case before the court, oftentimes there are winners and losers. And so it's not surprising that one party decides to appeal the judgment of the court. And while judges often try to apply the law to the facts and to get the right outcome, sometimes they get it wrong. Our guest here today is Lisa Speaker. She's the owner of Speaker Law, located in Lansing, Michigan. She's licensed in Texas and in Michigan and is well-respected by her peers. She's a member of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, and she's recently authored a book called Kids Caught in the Middle, How Families Are Harmed When Judges Don't Follow the Law. She's here today to talk with us about the appellate process, how it differs from regular litigation, and what families need to know when they're entering the legal system. Lisa, thank you so much for coming to be with us today. Well, Jennifer, thank you for having me. It's very good to be back in Dallas. Excellent. Well, I want to start off by just asking you in your appellate practice, um, what kinds of cases are you dealing with? What do you see most often going up on appeal? So our firm does specialize in appeals and we do family law appeals, which also includes child welfare cases and adoption appeals. But within the family law realm, we get a lot of post-judgment custody cases. And yes, we do have a lot of other kinds of family law appeals, but it seems like the post-judgment cases are the ones that actually get litigated more because they aren't able to settle like they were earlier in the case. So let's let's talk about yeah. what does post-judgment mean? And, okay. I, and, and I know what it means, but I'm gonna let you kind of help Absolutely. us understand what, what are we talking about here? Absolutely. So let's just say we have a husband and wife are getting divorced and then they go through the process of getting a judgment of divorce. And a lot of times what happens is they are able to work it out. They're able to come up with a settlement for uh, spousal support and property. They come up with an agreement about how they're gonna have parenting time with the children. And, and so it doesn't ever go to litigation. It never has a decision that's made by a judge. It's a consent judgment. Well, fast forward two, three, five, six years, depending on how old the kids are, and their lives are changing, right? They, maybe one of them wants to move to another state or they've changed jobs, they've remarried, the kids are getting older. Um, the kids are no longer in elementary school, they're in middle school and they're involved in sports. So all these things are happening in the life of the family because the family is constantly changing. And then somebody wants to change custody or wants more parenting time or wants to change the situation for some reason. And that's when we get the post-judgment, it's post-judgment of divorce usually, um, motion to modify custody. And those are the cases that are more likely to be litigated because at that point, people are entrenched in their lives and what they wanna do with their own separate worlds. Because before it was one world being divided in two, now we have two entrenched separate worlds and people are not willing to come to the table as much to come to an agreement that's gonna be for the best interest of the children. So they end up going to court and having a judge decide what custody should be. And of course, we, we do see that a lot. I know, for example, you know, the geographic restriction, which is really common in our family courts here, and I'm sure it is in Michigan as well, that ends up being one of the most challenging issues to litigate when, that, when a parent wants to move away with the kids. And, um, and there's not really usually like a happy medium. <laughs> like there, everybody just ups and moves to the middle ground. It doesn't really happen. It's not. It's, and it's hard when, in, in Michigan at least, when you have both parents have legal custody, you have to uh, convince the court that a change of domicile is appropriate. And there's, you know, a special test that you go through. And I'm, I know it's very similar in, in Texas. Uh, I have two cases right now where a mother wants to move from Michigan to Texas. <laughs> 
And both of them have jobs in Texas. One is in um, San Antonio, one is in Dallas. And, um, you know, mom, primary caretaker, wants to move to improve her life. The judge says no. And then we have to appeal that decision to give that parent a chance to improve the family's life and financial well-being. Um, but it's hard. It's hard for the left-behind parent, too, uh, especially if the left-behind parent is, was really actively involved. Now, there are a lot of cases where that parent really was not exercising parenting time, where they kind of were just not playing all in with their family until the day that their ex-wife or the mother of their child said, hey, I'm gonna, I wanna move the child across country. Then they're like, oh, I better start like taking this seriously. Um, but th there are repercussions on both sides. I, I'm smiling because I'm just, I'm happy to know that it also happens in other states besides Texas. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I would say this is probably one of those issues that, that is really complex. So, so what happens? I mean, how do the judges get it wrong? I guess I would start by saying, you know, what is what's in the judge's discretion mm -hmm. to decide, and then and then how do you appeal that? So there's two basic things that the judge decides. They decide how to apply the law, and they decide what the facts are. So sometimes, if you have a jury or you have a judge, they're the ones that get to decide what the truth is. And then we have the law, and the law is more or less black and white. And so what we see for appeal is that uh, well. The parents will come to us. They don't know what the judge messed up. They just say, hey, I got this result. I'm not happy with it. I was a primary caretaker, sole legal custodian, sole physical custodian, and now um, this this person, the, ma the man or the woman, whatever, um, who wasn't really involved with the children's life now has sole physical, sole legal custody. And they're like completely distraught because the children they spent all their time with are like hardly with them anymore. The whole schedules are flipped. And so we they don't know whether it's a legal or factual mistake. So we have to start digging into what happened. And the factual mistakes are really hard to appeal. If all there is is a factual mistake, like the judge didn't believe your witnesses and didn't find them credible, that's really hard to appeal because the trial judge gets to decide whether the witnesses are telling the truth or not. And they get to decide what the facts are. And you can appeal if it's what, quote, clearly erroneous fact finding, but that's still a harder um, appeal to pursue. What we find is that more often when we have success on appeal, and we do have a lot of success, success on appeal, it's because a judge did not follow the law or misapplied it in some way. And so, for example, uh, for post-judgment modification of custody, there's a series of steps you have to go through. You can't just rip a kid out of the only the custodial environment that they're familiar with and just change it overnight because you're on a whim you have to go through this series of tests um and and you were saying in in, in texas for example it was substantial change right? material substantial material change substantial change is the texas test and we have something very similar to that in michigan and so if you if the judge skips that step and then just goes through and makes a custody decision um that could be a legal error or for example, we have best interest factors. I'm assuming that we have them we in do Texas too. too. <laughs> and I, I did practice family law when I was in Texas. I, I am a full-time family law attorney now, but in Texas, I was a commercial litigator. So we, if they don't go through all the best interest factors, I mean, that's a legal error. So there's a lot of things that come up in children-related cases, especially where the judges just don't follow the law. And sometimes it's because they don't know the law or they don't take the time to figure it out or sometimes it's a, like a unique factual scenario the way it's come up through the courts it's not cut and dry it's not really easy to figure out it takes some explaining and if they don't have attorneys on the case who are able to articulate what the standard should be 
it's easier for the judges to make mistakes. Uh, yes, and that and that makes sense. And I, I know in Texas, at least, you know, you have to have the material substantial change. And, and so families will go through the whole litigation process and, you know, get through, you know, maybe the judge found there was a material substantial change, but it'll go up on appeal and mm -hmm. it'll get overturned on appeal because the appellate court said it not, not substantial, not material. Yeah. And so then it comes back down. Yeah. Um, what is the difference between uh, a trial to a trial judge um, versus uh, an appeal uh, appeal case when you're arguing at the appellate level. I think uh, there's a mistaken notion I find mm. that people get to retry their whole case if they take mm -hmm. it up on appeal. So they are significantly different. It's like a whole different forum, different venue. Um, you, you have an audience on appeal of three judges who are appellate judges. And in the trial court, you have the one judge um, who heard the case and decided the facts and decided how to apply the law. And on appeal, we're stuck with the quote unquote record that was created in the trial court. So what we find a lot is uh, parents will call us and say, well, my attorney didn't present this evidence or they didn't do that or there's more things that have happened in the five days since the judgment was entered. Well, none of that's part of the record. We can't talk about it on appeal unless it's actually been presented to the trial judge. And the reason for that is because on appeal, you're arguing that the trial judge made a mistake. So if the trial judge did not know about this you know, stack of documents, how can you say the trial judge made a mistake in not considering documents the trial judge didn't know about? So it all has to be based, the trial judge's errors have to be on the record and from the documents and the testimony that was presented to the judge. I was just going to clarify, when we say on the record, there is a court reporter who is um, taking down the testimony, the arguments, the objections, mm -hmm. the court's rulings on all of that, and it's all contained in a transcript. Right. And that's one of the most important things. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you are going to take your case up you know, on appeal or you wonder if you have a case, you mm -hmm. have to get the transcript. And in addition to the um, transcripts, there's the, the exhibits that were admitted at trial, right? right. So that the judge has seen a copy because they were presented to him or her during trial. And getting the transcripts is um, very costly. And yeah. a lot of times for, for some people, just that, that cost alone is a, a burden that, you know, if, if, if you have, we've had cases in our office where there was like over 20 days of trial. Well, guess what? When you have over 20 days of trial, it's gonna be mm. at, at least $8,000, $10,000 in transcripts. That doesn't include the time that it's going to take to review all of those transcripts to figure out what happened to be able to tell that parent's story to the court of appeals by writing a statement of facts to to figure out what the trial court did wrong and how they misapplied the law or what their clearly erroneous fact findings were um, sometimes we also argue that the trial court's ultimate decision was against the great weight of the evidence so um you know those are hard appeals but we have done them and we've won them, but it's, you can't expect to win every case when it's, you know, the factual appeals. And, and I think raising the cost of an appeal is really important for people to understand because, you know, I mean, I, I think it begs the question, can we live, can we live with the outcome? The, mm -hmm. the, maybe the judge didn't get it right, but is it okay? Mm -hmm. um, because it can be very, very costly. Right. And so for, for our clients, we have a, people that will call us complaining about financial decisions, for example, like the judge assessed uh, sanctions and, and, and a parent has to pay, you know, 500 or $5,000 in cost to the other side. Well, it prob most likely will be much cheaper just to write that check and pay it yeah. than to try to appeal it um, because it's going to cost more to appeal it than what it would be just to pay the check. You don't want to 
have a client who just wants to appeal on principle because we're talking about a family here and it's just having litigation and appeals are disruptive to the family. Um, but when it comes to children, you know, the viewpoint's pretty different because people are fighting to have relationships with their children. Mm. And and that's where like, okay, if we're talking about one parenting, one overnight was changed. Well, I'm gonna probably be telling the potential client that, you know, that's not gonna be worth appealing. Right. Not just because the court of appeals probably won't agree with us, but are you really gonna spend your resources, even if you have unlimited resources, are you really gonna spend your resources to fight over one overnight a week or, you know, like some modest amount. But when, you know, cases that come to our office, they've changed you know, the schedule where they had the kids all but four days a month and then the schedule's completely reversed. I mean, right. they, they have basically no choice but to appeal if they hope to regain that relationship with their children and have that time with their children. I think what you're touching on is one of the things that you and I both share in common, which is a commitment to our role to really be a counselor and advisor to our clients. So, you know, it's easy to take money and to, to put a fight mm -hmm. together, mm -hmm. but, you know, you have to look at the, the whole family dynamic and, you know, the outcome and the lives of our clients being wrapped up in litigation mm -hmm. and, um, and an appeals process, you know, it takes not just money, but that time that you don't mm -hmm. get back. And, and a lot of time the clients are, you know, they've been living it and they are, it's hard for, for them to see the forest through the trees. And, you know, we have to make recommendations once the client's hired us and maybe we have to order the transcripts to be able to figure out what actually happened. Um, but we have many times where we have to tell them, you know, like this appeal is not really going to be worth it. Um, either because there's no way you're going to win or the chances of winning are so slim. Um, it's just not going to make sense for you to, to use your resources. Maybe you'd be better off going back to your trial attorney, maybe paying your trial attorney to do another motion in six months or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be or a year um, or use it for therapy or, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Um, but it, appeal is not always the best choice. Right. But I, I think it is important also to understand that that appellate process is a really important check in our legal system to make sure that judges are following the law. And so I, you know, sometimes people, um, you know, don't, they may think it's all up to the judge's discretion that, you know, they, the fight is to get the judge to like you and so that the judge rules in your favor. I'm just wondering as an appellate attorney, what do you often see as the most kind of the common mistakes that are made um, maybe maybe by the trial attorneys? Uh, I think that's a good question to ask. Mm. And also, you know, by the judges when, when they do get it wrong. So from the judge's perspective, um, a lot of times the mistakes we see are they don't make fact findings. They hear all this evidence, but then they kind of forget to go through the statute step by step and make findings to support their decision. So you go through the statute and say, yeah, I think this parent or that parent should have sole custody. But if you don't actually make specific findings under each element of the statute, you're more likely to have made a mistake. Maybe not. I mean, maybe maybe your decision is perfect, but if you don't have fact findings, you're probably going to get reversed um, because the court of appeals can't guess what the judge was thinking. They right. have to like they can't tell from the decision what the judge was thinking. They're going to be like, well, we can't just assume the judge was doing the right thing. We have to see it on paper. Um, with the attorneys, you know, there's a wide variety of attorneys with a lot of different experiences. And so we have, we have like two groups of attorneys that we get cases from. We have the people that are our good friends that are, you know, very well, well versed in family law, are very dedicated to family law, that go to family law conferences. 
Um, I would say that would be like you, Jennifer, <laughs> here in Texas. And, and, they, and they know when they're over their head. They don't think they know everything. They're willing to ask questions during the process. They call us in the middle of trial because they want to make sure they get it right. They're, they're really good attorneys and they're cognizant that they don't know everything. Um, and then there's attorneys that maybe we don't know as well who you read and, and a lot of those aren't the attorneys that are referring us cases our clients are finding us by some luck of the draw that they've come across us somehow and we're seeing like what they've done in the trial court they haven't filed the motions that they needed to file they haven't made the objections they needed to object they haven't when the judge is starting to plow ahead without making findings or not trying to stop the judge to like your honor <laughs> we need to have findings on this um you know so there's like a wide variety in attorney skill set i guess yeah and i think i think it's really important i know um, when we're going into trial to at least be consulting with that appellate attorney to make sure you've kind of fleshed out you know what are the questions of law where where is the judge's discretion um, and really be ready to argue that and, and having an appellate attorney as part of your team is, is important. So yeah. I think it's, you know, yeah. we do have great relationships with appellate attorneys here in Texas. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important. What, um, what obviously like landing in your office is not something anybody desires to do. You don't want to be stuck in an appeal. What is some good advice for how to avoid an appeal? First of all, I wanted to say that I've noticed in the past two months, we've had more repeat clients mm. than we ever had. We, you know, occasionally we'll have a client who comes back for another appeal. But we have like six custody clients right now who've appealed before and now they're hiring us again because something else has gone wrong. And you don't want to be that parent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love my clients, but you don't want to be the person that's going to have to appeal the judge multiple times. I mean, if you have to, they, you know, they have to and they will. And, and we've had success on cases multiple times on the same case with, <laughs> until we can get that judge, you know, if there's a way to get a judge off the case or maybe they retire, we get a different judge. Um, but it's just really interesting that there are times when we have to see the same family again. And it's sad because you don't want them to have to, you want them to be able to move on. And, and right. at, you went on appeal, you want them to have success after that. You don't want them to ever have to call you again. And it's really a little bit heartbreaking when they have to call you again because things aren't going well. And I forgot your question, so you'll have to repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> I was asking you like how to avoid an appeal. Oh, yeah. what, what advice do you have for families oh, absolutely. Okay. entering into litigation? What can they do to like minimize the likelihood they're gonna be stuck in an appeal process for years? So this, you have to start thinking about this very early in the case. It's how you approach um, the litigation. Are you going to keep an open mind and, and be reasonable and try to negotiate um, and try to come to a, a reasonable settlement uh, if there's conflicts? Um, it's going to impact who you hire. Are you hiring somebody who's going to be really aggressive? It's going to fight, um, you know, to the death without willing to concede anything, who's going to generate a lot of paper, require the other attorney to respond. I mean, how aggressive is the litigation going to be? And if you can you don't have to have a, a weak attorney. That's not what I'm suggesting at all, but you need to have somebody who's strong and professional that who's gonna be willing to help you resolve it. So the way to avoid the trial and then the appeal is by being willing to settle and willing to talk to the other side to resolve your issues. And so what happens with family law cases when they do go to trial, there's always gonna be somebody who's, almost always is gonna be somebody who's completely unhappy. Now, sometimes both sides are unhappy and they both end up appealing. But usually if both sides are unhappy, they just like chalk it up, okay, we are gonna move on and we're gonna just right. live with the situation. Um, but when one party 
loses everything and the other party gains everything, there's pretty much, you don't have a choice. You have, you have to appeal. It, um, but to avoid appeal, you basically need to be open to, to settling if that's appropriate. Now, the problem we see in a lot of our cases is that one parent is very unreasonable. So you can be the nicest, kindest, right. most open, reasonable person, hire the best attorney who's going to be just like that. And if the other side is not like that, you're not going to be able to settle it. So it, it's there's cases that go to trial where there's something going on and the judges know it. They know something's going on. Now, sometimes they guess wrong and they think it might be about your client when it's actually about the other side or vice versa. Like, you right. know, our <laughs> clients aren't perfect either. We have clients that have issues. Some There's clients that have mental health issues or, you know, they have control issues. Sure. And there's a lot of things that are they're making bad decisions about how they're raising the children and how, well, not even how they're raising the children, but how they're interacting with the other parent. So one way to avoid litigation is to think about how you're interacting with the other parent. You know, using our family wizard, if you have a more contentious relationship helps mm -hmm. because you don't have as much engagement with each other. Um, but there's parents that just seem to engage with each other at parenting time exchanges and it just, I, I can't help but to, to think of Kanye West, right? Like kind of this hot topic of the day yeah. with um, kind of the online, you know, bullying that, mm -hmm. that happened. And, you know, when you see a, a client who's kind of, or the opposing party is acting out like that, mm -hmm. um, if it's a client, you know, it's, it's scary as a yeah. lawyer because you yeah. know that there are serious repercussions coming. Yeah. And it's so important for people to really just be very aware of the emotions mm -hmm. that they're feeling mm -hmm. and, and really cognizant of the, the impact that they're having. I mean, you know, parents, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, they might need to have therapy. And that's not a bad thing. If that can help them understand their feelings and their, their frustrations with having to deal with a co-parent, I mean, that was not their plan. I'm guessing to have to co-parent with this other person. Um, and, and now they're being forced to run everything by this person who maybe you know, they have a lot of issues for other reasons, like they cheated on them or whatever, you know, like there's all this history. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's feelings and feelings. It's, feelings, right. it's one of the of things feelings. that makes um, family law very challenging is because we know, you know, we're dealing with people at a very raw time. And, you know, I always feel like it's my job to help them kind of, you know, see the big picture to kind of reclaim the vision for their lives. So they're not stuck in that space. Yeah. It's a hard space to be in. And it's not just feelings there. I mean, there's obviously parents who are domestic violence victims yeah. or domestic violence survivors, but they're being put maybe in a position where they have to deal with an, a, an abuser on a regular basis because they have to do parenting time exchanges and they have to, to make decisions together. So it, it can right. be a handful. And it's not always the woman who's the one that's abused. I mean, sometimes it's the man that's been abused. So it, it's, you know, not gender specific. It's an important point. And, and I think, you know, the, the great thing about the legal system is that we do have a process to bring mm -hmm. resolution. If mm -hmm. parties cannot find that resolution themselves, then we have the judge to to make the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that's important that I always talk about with my clients is just the fact that when you take those issues to court, you are asking somebody who doesn't know your family mm -hmm. to be the decision maker. Yeah. And But at least you get closure with it. Uh, and unless yeah. they did, unless it's the wrong decision and then they get to know somebody like Lisa Speaker. <laughs> 
Um, just, you know, one of the things you and I were talking about was the importance of who the judges are and mm-hmm. um, kind of knowing the judges mm-hmm. and, you know, where you're practicing. And, you know, we elect them here in Texas. Um, we I do don't as well. know that. I don't even know if a lot of people know that our judges are yeah. elected. And Ours are elected as well. And they're appointed to fill a vacancy if somebody retires or passes away right. or whatever. They are appointed for the end of the ter- until the end of the term and then they have to run again. And so it's really important for people to know when it, when the ballot time comes around mm-hmm. who they're electing. What well, advice do you have? Okay, now the there's thoughts? two different things going on. <laughs> the, the election of judges and then knowing your judges. So first of all, parents don't have a choice on who their judge is. Right. They don't get to, to decide that. And, but knowing who your judges and knowing like what their weaknesses and strengths are, are probably going to be helpful. For example, if you know that they were experienced family law attorneys before they were on the bench, will maybe give you some comfort that they'll at least um, try to understand the law and apply it correctly. Um, but not everybody that gets on the family law bench has that background and maybe they're learning it for the first time. And, you know, there's a lot of issues with that. Knowing the judge's demeanor, I mean, you're going to know your trial attorney is going to be able to know what kind of experience they should expect. And usually the ju- the, t- the attorneys do know what to expect from the judge as far as the personality <laughs> right. and how they're how, to, how you should behave in court because this judge might react a certain way to certain people. Now, as far as election of judges, that's a very interesting topic. So here's the thing. In my experience, it feels like the regular folk don't know who any of the judges are. And that's, I get it. Only the attorneys know who the judges are. Right. Unless you're one of those unfortunate people who's had to litigate a case. <laughs> and most people, as many, you know, all we do is, all Jennifer and I do is family law, but at the same time, most people don't have cases that go to court. So like we represent a very small group of people um, and those people will be very active, you know, to vote for or against a judge. They right. like, if they felt, it not, it's not even about winning or losing, it's, feel, it's, it's if they felt they were treated with respect and dignity. Oh, it, that's so important. It's, I think that it's that's, not that's right. that the judges, they, it's not that the judge agrees with you or disagrees with you. Mm-hmm. How do they treat the people in their courtroom? And some judges are not nice mm-hmm. and other judges are, are really professional. And, you know, it's just, that's a personality thing um, that your trial attorney should know about. But for, as far as election, most regular people don't know who the judges are and, um, whether they're bubbling it in based on whatever, if, if, I don't know if we party don't, affiliation. We don't have party generally. affiliation for our judges, but in, if you're in Texas, mm-hmm. you do, or the gender, or whatever, like, or if they're incumbent or not incumbent. I mean, that's not really making a informed decision. Right. So I, I think a recommendation would be to try to make an informed decision because these judges are really important and they're going to affect a lot of lives. Well, they're really important in our community and the the impact that they have, even if you are lucky enough to never have to end up before mm-hmm. a family law judge, you probably have friends or family members who will and and that, that judge is going to have a significant impact in the lives of our community. Yeah. So I think this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you taking time and um, I guess I would just ask you to Think about like a message of hope. If somebody is embroiled in litigation, what what message of hope would you have for them? Well, <laughs> in a family law battle, I figured. Um, you know, my hope for the client would be that that a judge up the, up the chain will see the case the way it really is. If if that's what happened. And, and obviously a lot of times I feel that that's my client's position, but not always. Sometimes, you know, your, your positions, you know, we appeal and we don't think our position is as strong as other cases. But when you've seen a real wrong, and this book has a lot of examples of wrongs where 
custody was taken away inappropriately without following the law. And it was just a complete injustice. And, and you want to give clients hope that um, you have, you're going to have an attorney who's going to keep fighting for you, who's going to keep on working to keep your family together. And, and the reason I wrote the book, like as an appellate attorney, we, you know, we talk to new clients and, and they have factual issues or legal issues and we get really excited when, oh my gosh, the judge didn't follow the law. That's going to make a great appeal. Like, and it's a great appeal because we know the chances of us winning are higher. But the reason I wrote the book is because, you know, winning is great. I love winning cases, right? And I love having judges know that they didn't follow the law and having other judges tell them that they need to fix it. Um, there's a real like high off of that. But the reason I wrote the book is because there are people's lives are forever impacted when a judge makes an erroneous decision and changes custody, for example. And and if the whole litigation and, and appeal process takes a year or two or longer, that's going to impact that child for the rest of their lives. There's, you know, so you get it reversed on appeal, but that child has lost out on time with a parent that they should not have lost out on. And there's a real injustice there. And that's kind of the mission that I have is to get judges to follow the law because, you know, what are we doing to our children when like we owe it, we owe it to them. The judges owe it to them to follow the law. And if they follow the law, you know, judges are human beings, they make mistakes. But when they follow the law, it's more likely that they're gonna get the right result. If they just make a decision without regard to whether they're following the law or not, they're more likely to make a mistake, even factually. They think they're getting it right because it feels right, but that doesn't mean it is right. And if you um, don't follow the law, you're just taking a risk that you're destroying a family. I mean, I guess for your own ego, I don't know, like it just, <laughs> You got to follow the law. Right, so that's right. my mission is to get judges to follow the law. And and frankly, if we if we had some significant changes in our family court system, which I know is a lot different than yours um, in some ways, um, maybe there wouldn't be as many family law appeals. And that's OK. You know, like I can do other kinds of cases on appeal. <laughs> like I don't I mean, I love working on custody cases and adoption cases. And but it's it's hard because, you know, that some child is going to be impacted for the rest of their lives based on what happens in that case. Um, That's exactly so. right. So, you know, Lisa, thank you so much for um, your dedication to making sure that justice is uh, served to the people who need it most, which are our children. If you want to learn more about Lisa and, and her book, we're going to include a link to her website. And we hope you follow up. And I would encourage you to, to read her book so you can be empowered about the legal system, about where we get it right and where we get it wrong. And thank you for joining us. And of course, we'd love for you to subscribe, leave a comment down below. And until next time, we'll see you then.